So for these last few weeks, we've been talking about resurrection power, how the Easter event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the first Easter 2,000 years ago, gives us power to survive the challenges that we face today. And today, we're going to talk about the ultimate goal of resurrection power, which is the restoration of all things and the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. The ultimate reason Jesus rose from the dead is so that one day, he could bring us into his eternal home, into the kingdom of heaven, and so that he could make all things new. Our text today is Revelation 21, and it's a picture of heaven. I just want to encourage you, if you're interested in a deeper, more full-orbed view of what heaven is like, when you have some time in the next couple of days, read Revelation 21 and 22, which give us a picture of what heaven is going to be like and what God has in store for all those who put their faith in him. If you'd like to find this passage in your Bible, it's Revelation 21, and I'll start reading it right now. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that as we look at your word, you would renew our vision of heaven and the hope that you have prepared for all those who put their faith in you. Grant this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Resurrection power. That's what we've been talking about. The ultimate result, the ultimate end of resurrection power is the restoration of all things, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the picture we get here. You know, in the first century, when this was written, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation to Christians who were suffering persecution and struggling and doubting their faith in the, in the very first century of the church's life. He wanted to give them a vision of what heaven would be like so that they could keep their faith and so that they would renew their hope in the midst of all the difficulties they were facing. Sometimes in the modern age, we don't talk as much about eternity and as much about heaven and Christianity becomes sort of a self-help scheme to help us get through the challenges we face on a day-to-day -day basis. But then times like this pandemic and this shutdown remind us that this world is not our home, that Jesus didn't promise us that everything on earth would go well. He promised us that one day we'd get to heaven and there we would receive our reward. So I want to talk about the picture of heaven he get, gives us here and then what that means for us. There's a couple things he says in the text that give us a vision of what heaven is going to be like. The first thing he says, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Well, I guess that's bad news. If you like the beach, there's no sea in the new heavens and the new earth. But actually, in olden days, in, in ancient times, and throughout the Bible, the sea is the picture of chaos and mayhem. The sea is where bad things come out of. The sea was a place that people regarded, ancient people regarded as sort of the border of how far they could go, how far they could travel, and they were afraid of what would come out of the sea. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, he describes the beast as coming out of the sea. And in Genesis chapter 1, the, before God created the world, it says that, that the world was just a darkness covered the waters, and the Spirit of the Lord was over the waters, and then God brought order and he brought creation out of the chaos of the sea. And so the sea was a symbol of chaos, the symbol of a world that was out of control and unmanageable. For us today, I think in the last couple of weeks, all of us have known a little bit of that chaos as our lives have been upended, as our plans have been canceled, as our intentions and things we took for granted have been taken away from us in different ways. And in fact, this life is full of chaos, full of unmanageable relationships, unmanageable circumstances, unmanageable health problems. Things happen to us, but the picture of heaven is that the chaos is brought to an end and there's no longer any sea because we're now in a perfected and redeemed circumstance. Not only is there no longer any sea, but then the voice from the throne says, I am making everything new. What he says is he's disrupted linear progress. You know, in our world, things just kind of time marches on and aging marches on and, and things things break and things wear out, including the things we make, the things we build, and our own bodies to a certain extent. And that process seems to accelerate the older that you get. And the best thing we can hope for in this age is, is that we make something, we repair something, and it's like new or as good as new. But when God comes and he renews the heavens and the earth, he makes all things new again. New in a sense that they're better and improved on what they were before. You know, if you're injured and you go to the hospital, say you injure your knee, maybe the doctor can repair your knee so that it's almost as good as it was before or, or, or feels like it did before. But when God renews all things, he doesn't just repair things so that they're like new. He makes all things new. And so the vision of heaven that the book of Revelation gives us is a new heavens, a new earth that we are now, now a part of, a place where righteousness dwells and everything is made new. And so we see this cosmic work of God that there's no longer any sea. The chaos has been taken out of the world and all things are made new. And then we see the compassion of God. We see the grace of God. We see the mercy of God. He says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So the same God that's working cosmically to make all things new is working personally 
like a father to his children, wiping the tears from their eye, taking away the things that ruin them, taking away death and mourning and crying and pain and bringing them in to a new world. So that's the promise of hope that God gives to all of us in the midst of our decay, in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our agony. God is making all things new. God is preparing for us a world where there's no longer sea, where chaos and and unmanageability has been taken away and we are safe and we are secure. And God will reach down and wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because the old order of things has passed away. If you go on to read the book of Revelation, it describes the new city, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem that God is creating. And it's a city unlike anything that we can imagine. For one thing, it's not made of glass and steel and concrete and asphalt. It's a city that's made only of gold and precious stones. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I think what the Bible is communicating, that this city is more glorious and more opulent and more luxurious than anything we can imagine in this world. That the most fabulous palaces, the most pristine neighborhoods, the, the greatest dwellings that ever been have ever been made on this earth are nothing, will look like shanties and shacks compared to the glory of what we look forward to. I know a lot of you are listening to this and you're stuck because your place isn't that nice. Maybe you don't live in the best neighborhood. Maybe you don't live in the best part of town and you look at other places and you say, boy, I wish I could get there. I wish I didn't have to live in this place, this part of the world where life is just a struggle all the time. And the picture of heaven is a promise that one day you'll live in a neighborhood that's so good. One day you'll live in a city that's so luxurious that it'll surpass anything you've ever seen or anything you can even imagine in this world. And all the luxuries of this world, all the opulence of this world, all the wealth of this world will look like poverty compared to the hope and the glory that God has in store for all of his children if we follow him. And so the Bible gives us this vision so that if we're rich, if we have everything this world has to offer, we recognize that this isn't really what we're here for and there's something greater and something better that's waiting for us, something that will satisfy our souls. And if we're discouraged, if we're going through a hard time right now, if our living situation's difficult, if our material situation's difficult, if we're in the midst of a crisis, if we're in the midst of chaos, we can trust that if we'll hold on, he's coming and he's making all things new and we have something better that we can look forward to. We have hope in hard times and times of irredeemable loss. If we remember that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Paul the Apostle puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Therefore, I do not lose heart, for my light and momentary troubles are achieving for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, because what is seen is temporary, 
but what is unseen is eternal. Those of you who are troubled now, remember that your troubles even now are achieving for you an eternal glory that will far outweigh all the troubles that you face right here and right now. So you can have hope. You can have hope in that power, that hope, hope in what God is doing in our midst. But now I want to talk a little bit about what we should be working for. What does this vision of heaven call us to right here and right now? A lot of people who are not believers hear the Christian doctrine of heaven and they get kind of cynical about it. Perhaps most famous among them is Karl Marx, who said that the doctrine of heaven is the opate of the people. The doctrine of heaven is something that was used by people, Karl Marx said, to oppress them and to enable them to tolerate oppression and tolerate being taken advantage of. Even in our day, there's sort of that, there is that saying, that person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And I don't know quite what that means, but I know that what the Bible shows us and what the history of believers shows us is the people who are heavenly minded are the people who are the most earthly good. The people who realize that right now counts forever are the people who are going to make the greatest impact on this world. And let me show you why this is the case. First of all, remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Remember the Lord's Prayer? It's kind of interesting what he says. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when Jesus taught us to pray, he told us something about what he wants us to long for, wants us to look for, and wants us to work for, to bring heaven to earth. The things that characterize heaven, the peace, the comfort, the solace, the abundance, we want to work while we're on earth to bring those dynamics to earth. Bringing heaven to earth is a summary of the child of God's mission here on earth. And and so that's one of the things we ought to work for, because the vision that the apostle gives us is that God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. And one thing that the Bible says over and over again is the things that we do for God, the things that we do in Jesus' name, the sacrifices we make and the service we offer in Jesus' name, in surprising ways, those are going to find their way into the new heaven and the new earth. So, the, so right now can count forever if we're living by faith and we're serving God. One of the things that this reminds us of is that our service matters, our sacrifices matter. Sometimes we do things for people and we wonder if they appreciate it. We do things, we pour our lives into things, and we wonder if it's really making a difference, if it's really making an impact. But what Jesus says over and over again is that the service we offer here and now, the sacrifices we make here and now, are going to find their way into eternity, are going to be featured in eternity in meaningful and powerful ways. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus puts it this way. He says, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple, I truly tell you, that person will not lose their reward. Jesus says, even the smallest gesture, giving a cup of water to a little child, 
giving a little bit of relief to one of the weakest and most vulnerable among us. If we do that in his name, if we do that by his grace, that is something that he will reward. That's something that's going to last forever. So the service that we offer, the sacrifice we offer, especially the sacrifice that goes unrewarded and unrecognized in this life, the sacrifice and the service that, that we offer up that nobody else notices and seems not to be that significant will find its way into heaven. The sacrifice we offer that isn't that significant because we're not powerful or positioned to offer significant sacrifice, but maybe we can offer a cup of water to a little child. That will find its way into the kingdom of heaven. So the service we offer and also the sacrifices we make in this world will find their way into the kingdom of heaven in ways I'm not quite sure how this works. I'm not quite sure what this, what this will look like, but I know that it's going to be worth it. It's going to be a good investment. Some of you might be familiar with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, store up for yourself treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says quite literally that the sacrifices we make, that the generosity we exhibit in this world will is actually, even though it might be depleting our treasures on earth, it will be storing up for us treasure in heaven. And it's the best investment we can make because it's, it's showing and it's actualizing the reality that our heart is in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as people who are hoping in heaven, we need to live lives of service. We need to live lives of sacrifice and of generosity. And as we do that, we're bringing heaven to earth. And as we do that, we're creating something intangible, something invisible, something nobody else sees that will find its way into the new heavens and the new earth and will be enjoyed in a way we can't even imagine now for all of eternity. And so it's a question I think we can ask everybody and all of us can ask ourselves is that what is there in the way I live my life? What is there in the way I spend my money? What is there in the way I spend my time? What is there in the way I devote my energy that can only be explained by my hope for eternity. To what extent are you storing up treasure in heaven? To what extent are you serving the lost and the least in a way that will secure you a reward for all eternity? Paul says in another place, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What Paul is saying there, he's saying, I've bet everything on the next life. I've bet everything on the ideal that there is another world, that there is an eternity out there, and I'm working for that eternity right here and right now. And so that's, that's the challenge for you and for me. To what extent is our life inexplicable apart from our hope in heaven? To what extent are we making inexplicable sacrifices in light of our hope in heaven? To what extent are we making offering incomprehensible service 
because of the hope that we have in heaven. See, this view of eternity doesn't make this life less important. It makes this life more important because we can actually leverage the 20 or 30 or 50 or 80 years that God gives us right here and right now. We can leverage that for all eternity. As people used to say, and we can even say today, right now counts forever. Right now matters because it matters forever. See, a view of heaven doesn't make this life less significant. It actually makes this life more significant because we have the opportunity to offer service. We have the opportunity to offer sacrifices that will last forever as we follow God. So, so this life matters, but the heart of heaven, this is the last thing I want to talk about today is what's made, what is at the heart of heaven? And the heart of heaven is simply this, that Jesus is there. John has this vision. John the apostle has this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And he says he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, the dwelling place of God is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. What is it that makes heaven heaven? It's not streets of gold. It's not decorations of precious stones. It's the very presence of God. He describes that as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, when he's talking about Jerusalem, he's not talking about a geographical place. He's not even talking about an ethnic place or or a, uh, a religious place so much. Jerusalem was a type. Jerusalem was a symbol. There were two things that were important in Jerusalem. One was the temple. In Jewish expectation, in, in Old Testament expectation, the, the temple where the people went to meet with God was located in Jerusalem. And so if you wanted to meet with God from wherever you lived, you would travel to Jerusalem, offer your sacrifices, offer your prayers, and meet with the priests there at the temple. And the other thing Jerusalem had was the palace. The palace that David built, that Solomon and his, his descendants lived in, and that one day the final son of David, the true son of David, would inhabit. And so Jerusalem symbolizes the, the promise fulfilled to David that he would have a son who would reign eternally. Jerusalem symbolizes the presence of God. It's the place where people could go and could meet with God. And all of these things, the final son of David, the final sacrifice of God, the final temple through whom we can meet with God, all of these things come together in the person and the work of Jesus. And it's the presence of Jesus in heaven that makes heaven heaven. And John's very deliberate how he says this. Remember, John also wrote, wrote the Gospel of John. But here in, in Revelation 21, he puts it this way. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John in the prologue, the very first chapter of, of the book of John, he says, the word became flesh 
and dwelled among us. And New Testament scholars point out that the structure of these sentences are exact parallels to one another. So at the incarnation, Jesus, the Word of God, became incarnate, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And here at the glorification, God's dwelling place is among his people. And so we see here that what he's looking forward to, what what heaven points to as a city with Jesus at the center of it. And through Jesus, we have access to God. Through Jesus, we have finally the good king, the perfect king, who can eliminate the chaos, who can eliminate our enemies, and who can rule and give us the abundance and the hope and the security that we are all looking forward to. Heaven is heaven because of the presence of Christ. Heaven is possible because of the victory of Christ. And and so this is the culmination of the work of Christ. We say that you know Christians celebrate the work of Christ in our major celebrations. At Christmas we celebrate the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. On Good Friday we celebrate and we commemorate the fact that Jesus died for our sins. On Easter we celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And all of that comes together ultimately in this picture of the glorified Lord here in heaven. It says that God himself is with us. As you, if you look through the Old Testament, the ultimate covenant blessing, the ultimate covenant promise is when God says to his people, I will be with you. I will be with you and I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's the ultimate gift, that God gives us his presence, that God is with us. Think about our lives. Our lives are defined by who we're with. Our social lives are defined by who we're with, who we get to hang out with. Our our professional lives are defined by who we're with, who we work with, who we work for, who works for us. Who you're with professionally is what's going to define your career. Your family life is defined by who you're with, the people you're with. During this pandemic, all of those relationships have been stressed. All of those relationships have been tested. And one of the hard things about this pandemic, about this time, is that we haven't been able to be with people who we want to be with. Some of you might be dating or in in a romantic relationship, and because of shelter in place, you're not able to be with the people you want to be with. Some of us have friends and family and loved ones in other states, and we're not able to see them, not able to travel to where they are, and so we can't be with those people. Some of us have had our professional lives disrupted by the pandemic, and we're not sure who we're with, or if we're in that dreaded category of being unemployed, of looking for work, looking for someone to work with, someone to work for. But the promise of the gospel, the promise of the work of Jesus, the promise of eternity, and the promise for those who are trusting in Christ right here and right now is that God is with us. The word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will come and be with you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. One day 
we will ascend to heaven and we will never be alone again because God will be with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. And so that's the hope and the promise and the assurance that all of us can have if we look to the one who's at the center of heaven and make him the center of our lives. And when we do that, our lives can be conduits of heaven, and we can get a little foretaste of heaven, even right here, even right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the presence of Jesus through his Spirit would be a reality for us today. I pray particularly for those who are lonely, particularly for those who are anxious, particularly for those who are isolated, particularly for those who are separated from love, beloved family and friends, that even in their isolation, even in their loneliness, even as they shelter in place, that they might know the presence of Jesus and the reality of his power in their lives. Help all of us in this difficult time and in the face of whatever difficulties life is throwing at us. Lord Jesus, help us to live with hope because we know that our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Amen.